Let's take our Bibles. Let's head to Romans chapter 13. Fellas, you have sermon notes. If somebody did not get those sermon notes out of the bulletin, join us by raising your hand, getting into these notes so you can follow along a little bit better. If you're not following the notes, at least you can do some drawing, some doodling to try to keep awake. As we continue with a series that we talked about, Truths for Today. This week, I had the opportunity where I was doing some business downtown. I overheard a gentleman who was telling us and got involved in this conversation. He was talking about his son. His son, who is watching the presidential elections and was watching the debates a few weeks ago, and as his son, who was uh, right around that first grader, he was watching, he said, I don't know about those people. I just don't know about those people. And they said, well, what's wrong? He says, they just don't deal with the issues. They don't deal with the issues. This is a first grader. And dad's looking at him and said, well, do you think you could do it better? Oh, I could be a better president than them. And I would deal with the important things. He said, well, son, what would be the first thing you would do if you were president in the United States? What would you do? Oh, that's easy. I'd make sure all the elephants get back into the circus. That's his criteria for being elected. Everybody has opinions on what should be happening with the elections. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about that for this week and next week and the week or so after that and deal with some of the very important issues that deal with some of that are related to the elections. Now, some of you may respond like me and ask this question, why are you talking about politics in the church? Because we shouldn't be doing that because there's the idea of separation of church and state. My friend, that's a misnomer. The Constitution never talked about that. And as I'll show you this morning from a lot of documented uh, material, that our founding forefathers did not intend to have a separation from religion. That was never their intent, and that would be a mistake if we allow that to continue. Some of you might say, well, we hear about politics way too often, and I'm with you. I'm tired of it. I am getting so frustrated with it that I feel like anymore I'm going to have to go when we vote and hold my nose. It's just a very disturbing and and discouraging thing. But sometimes we need to come as Bible believers and deal with topics and issues that may not be popular, that may not be fun to talk about. And frankly, I don't want to talk about this either. But I think it's essential that we talk about for the benefit of some of those who may be younger in the Lord or younger in age that they need to learn some of the biblical stance and principles on some of these very very important topics of our day because they are getting inundated with a certain point of view. We need to counter some of that point of view with the Bible. So for those who are older, those who are older in the Lord, you may have everything settled in your mind, but there are a number of folk that need to be encouraged because there is a pervasive teaching and preaching in America that is taking us away from Bible principles. And somehow we need to try to help our young people in particular to be able to anchor themselves in what's truth. And so we need to take time to talk about it. Now, some of you may say, why do we talk about it? We all know that government is absolutely corrupt. And that all those government officials, that they are corrupt themselves. That you know when a politician is lying when they open their mouth. You know, that you know that everything is bad about it. This is an errant thought on our part. And it comes from a pessimism that is not founded in scriptures. If we go back to the Bible, we would remind ourselves that not all government is corrupt inherently. And not all officials are. God established government in the very beginning. And what God created and what God put together wasn't evil. What God formed wasn't bad. That's like saying because some families fall into disarray and divorce, therefore all families are bad. You can't say that. That would be erroneous by Scripture because God designed the family. God designed government. We can go all the way back to Genesis 9 and make a a conversation about it, which we will do in the next couple of weeks. We'll come back to that. But as well, we have to come to a conclusion that God endorses government. God says it is beneficial. In Romans chapter 13, he has a major part of Scriptures that he talks about government that you and I need to talk about and we need to understand 
Even though it may not be dealing with your personal problems this day, this is, a, this is an issue in your personal life for every single day. In Romans chapter 13, he writes and says this about government. Let every soul, that's you, be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or destruction. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon them that, does, that do evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, or for fear, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause, pay your tribute. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There is in this text a lot of principles. There's principles about civic, civil leaders being ordained of God. The idea of resisting is to resist God. Rulers are called a minister of God three times actually in this text, twice in verse 4. That you and I for conscience sake to be right with God is his idea. We need to be subject unto those authorities who are again ministers of God. Now there's another text that is important for New Testament believers to understand. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter headed towards the Back of your Bible, you're going to be finding First Peter. After Hebrews, James, you have Peter. First Peter is talking about government once again, and he gives us all kinds of information that is critical. First Peter chapter two, jump down to about verse thirteen. He says to you and me, again, this is written to believers. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, the governor, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Do well. First, so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Keep on going. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and do what? Honor the king. Okay, what we have in this text is the idea of submitting to laws, applying to all levels of the law, being the will of God, and giving honor to the king. So we've got some principles that you and I need to grab and work with, to look at. And besides, the Bible talking about government, the Bible about you being involved, it never forbade Christians from being involved in government. You had individuals in the Old Testament who were involved. You have the idea of, in the New Testament, different saints being involved. Even when they got converted, they were not told that they need to give up their government jobs or to change because government is evil. Paul dealt with government. He stood before kings with respect and he shared the gospel with him and Paul also used his civil rights to help protect the gospel. So the bottom line is that you and I cannot say that all government is evil. It's not. And not that everybody who is involved is unsaved. That's not true at all. Now you might say, okay, the Bible doesn't say anything about politics. It really does. Or you might say it won't make much difference anyway. Whatever I do, I'm just one vote or one person. Well, listen, one person can make a big difference. One person can have a tremendous impact upon the people or even upon your local community or even upon different national events. So you and I should seek to be able to make a difference. Bottom line is this. 
I believe that if I were to study the Bible and share every different text with you as we go through, the bottom line is for you and me that we should be concerned and involved in what happens in our land, in our government, because it affects us and it affects our family. It affects missions drastically. It affects the ministries in just a tremendous way. What happens? I think, therefore, that being an American, that you and I should then, as we vote, we should be involved. We should, and this is probably a change for some of you in your thinking, I think that what we should do is let the Bible guide our voting instead of the gender or the race or the looks or the hairdos okay, or how outspoken somebody can be or how quiet they can be I really think we should let the Bible give us principles on what we should vote for and who we should vote for I really am convinced of that I think that as Bible believers we should live by the Bible and therefore seeking to make an influence on the world around us it should be done by what does the Bible tell us to do Not whether it's going to benefit me economically. What does the Bible say it's going to do? And let me give you three reasons why, as a believer, you should be involved and let the Bible give you direction. Number one reason is this. is because as a Christian citizen, you have a God-given obligation to your country. Now, it may not be America. Maybe you're here, and you are here, and visa, whatever. Whatever your country is. You have a God-given responsibility. In fact, you have several different God-given responsibilities to, those, to the nation that you are a citizen of. You can go with me to multiple passages, and we could see that we have an obligation by Scripture to pray for our leadership. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read that, First of all, when you gather together, I exhort therefore, first of all, prayers be made for all men, especially for the kings and those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. This is a command of God for how a church is to function. One of the things we're to do when we gather together is to pray. One of the major things we're supposed to pray for regularly is the nation and for the leadership. We'll come back to that. Why? And what's the focus of that prayer? But we are also told to submit to the laws of the land. We've already looked at some of this passage. We are told that we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance for the Lord's sake. That is, for conscience sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto his governors or to them that are underneath the governor. We're supposed to submit to the laws of the land. That takes us to another thought, an obligation. We're to be respectful of our civic leaders. This to me is really difficult because there are a number of civil leaders and national leaders that I personally would not have much respect for. And I don't. But they hold an office that says I'm supposed to be respectful for that office. And so what you and I are supposed to do is honor the king. That is a command of God to you and I who are born-again believers. This is our role. There's another responsibility that I don't enjoy, okay? And I'm sure you don't jump up and down when April 15th comes, and you aren't thrilled when they pull it out of your paycheck, but it is our obligation, and frankly, we benefit from this. Okay, that is to pay our taxes. That we're supposed to pay our tributes, pay the dues, pay the customs. All of those have to do with taxes that were in an operation in Bible days. So we have multiple obligations clearly stated for you and I who are saints in the world that we're living in, in the political realm. Jesus said we're supposed to pay taxes, and he gives a reason why at one time. When he is paying his temple tax, which was required of all the Jewish males, Jesus said, lest we offend them. Lest we create a problem where they won't listen to us, I want you, Peter, to pay our temple tax. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down, have you go down, you're going to cast out the line, you're going to catch a fish, and in the fish you're going to find the coins that are going to be able to have enough in that fish's mouth that you should be able to pay both of our taxes. Now, Rich Reinheimer says that teaches us that we should go fishing more and more and more in order to make a living. 
when I taught that in Sunday school. Okay, richest theology may be skewered. But the idea, the idea here was they had to pay taxes and Jesus commanded that it was to be done. In fact, when he was being challenged, they said, is it lawful? They thought they caught Jesus. Here we go. Jesus is going to say something that he's going to get in big trouble with, with the authorities. Should we not pay taxes if he says... Yeah, pay taxes to the Romans. Then all the Jews are going to get upset with him because the Romans have us in captivity. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, he's going to sound like a Jewish rebellion or rebel, and therefore the Romans will arrest him. And Jesus responds very wisely, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God's what is God's. And so he gives a principle that we're supposed to be involved in our government, supporting it, so it's real clear. You and I do have some involvement in our government. We're supposed to. And whatever that government may be, whether it be a dictatorship or republic or whatever it would be over the years, God's people are supposed to be citizens who are doing these different things, praying, respecting, obeying the laws to the best of their ability, unless they go against the word of God, paying the taxes. We're to be involved in, the, in our government, even if our government is not a great government. He is saying it at the time that they're under these leaders who are like Nero. I don't have to explain him. You already know about him. Or the, the Sanhedrin. They were corrupt. You know about them. And Jesus says you were supposed to be supportive. We're supposed to be acting as proper citizens. Even if that government is not pro-Christian, we're supposed to still pay the taxes, obey the laws, unless they violate the word of God, be respectful, and pray for our government leaders. That is our duty, to be involved, to be supportive. So if we're supposed to do that, that is clearly expressed in Scripture by fulfilling our civic duties to try to benefit the government, be good Christian citizens, doesn't it stand to reason that we would exercise our greatest right as an American and do some voting as a Christian to try to influence this land? Which leads me to a second reason. A second reason why you and I should let the Bible guide us in our voting this year. We said number one reason is because as a Christian citizen you have obligations. Now it doesn't say thou shalt vote because that wasn't there at that time. But it tells you to be supportive of your government, to be involved in positive ways. The conclusion is if for us today we have the benefit and the privilege of being able to vote to be even more influential, which leads me to this thought. As a citizen of God's future kingdom, which by the way, those of us who are born again, we have two citizenships. This is the bigger of the citizen, the better of the citizenship. Having a, having a pass, a passport to be able in God's future kingdom, you have additional obligations to impact the world that you live in, the land that you live in. I remind you of, the, of what the Bible says about the kingdom of God. The Bible has a lot about the kingdom. It talks about this future kingdom that is going to come to the earth. It is a physical kingdom. It is one that has a capital city that's identified as the new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem right now is being built in heaven. John chapter 14, Jesus is there preparing mansions. The idea is that this thing is huge, 1,500 miles in every direction, high, wide, depth. We know that it is beautiful down description as it's described in, Re in the book of Revelations, chapter 20, 21. He keeps on saying, like as as. He talks about the foundations being multicolored. He talks about the streets of gold, that the city itself is clear as glass by these diamonds. It is an absolutely beautiful spot, that will a city that will one day descend down into this earth where God will have his kingdom here on earth. This kingdom, 
will be ruled by Jesus Christ himself who will physically return to this earth who will take over the authority that's, that is throughout the entire world and it's going to be a kingdom that is going to go from the United States all the way to Jerusalem all the way to the Russias all the way to China and encompass the entire world. That was promised even when Jesus came the first time for unto us a son is given. Unto us this, this child is born the government should be upon his shoulder and he goes on he says the increase or expansion of the government and the peace of the government shall be there shall be no end to it or no limit to it. It's going to be worldwide. In Daniel when he gives that vision of the, all the different major kingdoms of the world including the time period we're living in right now. He says that there's going to be this stone, this fiery stone coming out of heaven. It's going to destroy this statue which represents all the major human empires. And when it destroys them, in the days of the king shall God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, shall never be overthrown. It shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So Jesus is going to establish a kingdom here on earth, a physical kingdom that is going to be a forever kingdom. It's going to be a fabulous kingdom. It's a kingdom that is described in scripture as worldwide peace, prosperity like never before, the deserts blooming, the rivers no longer are we going to have droughts, no longer will there be hurricanes, no longer will there be firestorms, there will be no crime, there will be no need for policemen who will be threatened, there will be no corruption, there is going to be total justice, there's going to be a perfect climate, there's going to be abundance of food, there's going to be a universal language where we can understand everyone wherever we travel. It is going to be beyond our wildest imaginations this kingdom will be on earth when Jesus Christ comes and establishes it. Now that could happen any day that Jesus returns and begins that process of getting his kingdom underway. Now when that happens, the question is going to be, are you going to be in that kingdom? Now that's a future kingdom. That is a kingdom in his preparation that could happen any day. He could come and take away all of his children, all of his believers to heaven to prepare them for that time when he will come back seven years later and establish his kingdom. Are you ready if he were to come back? Well, if those of us who are, those of us who have gotten, gotten saved, we're ready. But you have to remember this kingdom, Jesus said very clearly, except you be born again, you cannot see it, you cannot enter into it. You must be born again. Now, how do you do that? Well, you don't get born again by baptism. You don't get born again by going to church. You don't get born again by being a good-looking person or being an American. Living in a Christian land. You don't get born again by having a Bible and knowing the Ten Commandments and having that trivia underway. You don't get to heaven because you can sing hymns. You don't get to heaven by dressing up. And I'll guarantee you don't get to heaven because you're a preacher. Guarantee that. You get to heaven through Jesus Christ. By asking him to become your personal savior by admitting that you are a sinner. We've been talking about the rich man who comes to Jesus in our Sunday school lesson, how he came and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It was all about him, all about what he could do to get to heaven. He's talking to the man, the very one who could get him into heaven, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This rich man says to Jesus, what do I need to do? Isn't that the attitude of most people? What do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, listen, let me see what your needs are. Have you kept all the commandments? I've kept every one from my youth, he says. And Jesus says, well, here's one. Give away, sell everything you have and give it away and then follow me. The Bible says the man went away, what was his attitude? Grieving. Why? Because he had great riches. He was willing to do the commands that were convenient for him. He was willing to do what was 
accommodating to him. But when Jesus struck at the very heart of his life that his God was his goods, that he was putting more stock in his wealth than he was in the one who came from heaven, the man went away grieving. There's going to be a whole lot of individuals that one day will say, I've been religious, I've gone to church, I've kept the commands. But he will say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You and I need to know Jesus Christ. And how do we get to know him? By asking him personally into our life. Into our life by becoming my savior. Becoming intimate with Jesus. Just like the illustration he uses in scriptures about he being the bride and you and, our, you and I being the bride and he being the groom. There's that idea of intimacy with Jesus Christ. And a bride and groom, there's got to be one moment in their personal history where they are pronounced husband and wife. And then from then on, they're husband and wife. Well, in the same way, there's one moment in your personal history where you need to turn to Jesus Christ and say, I take you to be my Savior because I can't get to heaven on my own. And you call upon Christ to be your Savior and you begin an intimate relationship with Him. That's being born again. That's being in, in His family. And that is the requirement that He has for you to enter into that kingdom that one day that He will establish here on earth. Now those of us who already have done that and we've been given that marriage license to Jesus. We've got that birth certificate into God's family. We have that passport into the kingdom of heaven. We have an obligation an obligation, according to scriptures, to impact our society for good and for God. We already read this passage. Out loud together, we read this at the beginning of the service, that you and I are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are to let that light shine. That world is in darkness, but you and I are to be different. We are to be that salt that brings to this world a different flavor. That salt that brings to this world a healing. That salt that preserves what is righteous in this world. That salt that can bring healing to the wounds. You and I are supposed to do that. That salt that can create a thirst for the things of God. Why? So we do that so that they may see your good works and eventually glorify your Father which is in heaven. The idea is that they too would be able to see what you have to offer, respond to what you tell them has happened in your life. You got born again. They may accept that for their life and they would be with God in heaven one day. You're to be a witness. You're to be an impact. You're to use your life. You're to use your lips. You're to use your riches. You're to use... Every, uh, every um, right that you have, every responsibility that you have, every tool within your disposal to try to affect the society around you to get people to come to God. In fact, we can go back to what we already said. We have obligations to pray. We have obligations to respect. We have obligations to pay taxes. Do you want to know why? Every one of these texts gives us a reason why we're to do those duties. And it's not so we can prosper in this land. That is not what God says. God does not say that we should do this so we can stay out of trouble. Well, that's a secondary reason, obviously. But what is the major reason why we're to pray for leaders? Why we're to be respectful? Why submit? Why pay taxes? Here's why. He gives it in these passages. The very passages that we looked at said that you and I are to be um, promoting a, a good citizenship so we can promote a positive atmosphere for the promotion of the gospel. Now, I understand that the world isn't going to love the gospel. But you and I are not supposed to hinder the gospel by the way we act, the way we talk. We're supposed to act in such a way that people will have a thirst for the things of God. That people will desire, even our rulers, that they may have a different opinion of Christianity by the way that we as citizens respond. Let me show you what I mean. 
In 1 Peter, he says, they speak evil against you. They mock you because he goes on in 1 Peter, he talks about you don't do the things that you used to do. You don't do the wild parties, the cussing, the carrying on, and they think you're odd. They think you're strange. They speak evil against you, but when they see your good works, they would glorify God in the day of his return. That is, they would respond to him. Then they, they would then uh, uh, accept him as Savior. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence their ignorance. The point that, you and, that he's making is you and I in this text honor and respect the authorities is so that you and I and obey the laws, excuse me, to obey the laws, respect, uh, and, and do what's right. It's the will of God for this one reason. So that others around you would listen to your gospel witness. You make a more positive atmosphere for the witness of Jesus Christ. For the good of, of others becoming born again. In Timothy, he says, pray. Pray for your leaders that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Why? So that our kids don't have to go to war. Well, that's true. We don't want that. Why? So that we can make more money. That is not the reason in the context. In the context, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. What is? That quiet and peaceable life, what? Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why do we pray for peace? Why do we pray for quietness? Why do we pray for our leaders? For the promotion of the gospel. So that it is not hindered by warfare. That it is not hindered by all kinds of calamity and chaos in society. That the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. Who will have all men to be saved and come down to the knowledge of the truth. That they would hear that truth. And that that word would be permeated, would be propagated without disruption. Just like it was in the days of Rome. With the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Such a critical time in history that the gospel was able to spread. He says, you pray that that would be in your day. In your land. So that the gospel can be carried out. We have in Matthew that same idea. That as a citizen, we're to make a difference. The salt and the light. So they would glorify God. Here's the idea. Is that you and I, in the public realm, we're supposed to have an influence that would help in the promotion of the gospel. That's why we do what we're supposed to be doing as citizens. So that we don't hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's true in your personal life. You're to work as an honest worker so as to pure or to... to uh, Make the gospel, the word is to adorn or to beautify the gospel. So as you work, your co-workers would listen to you. They would respect you. That when you talk about honesty and integrity, they would see that you are that type of person. Why are you that way? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. I work for Jesus Christ. Why is it that in our language, we're supposed to be pure in our speech? Why is it that we're supposed to be pure in our entertainment so that when we share the gospel with others, that they would say, hey, you in your personal life, you mean it. It's made a difference in your life. And you're not being hypocritical. Why is it that, an un, that a woman who has an unsaved husband is supposed to live in such a way in a, quick, uh, in, a, in a meek and quiet spirit so that he, the unsaved husband, would see the gospel and he would be brought under conviction by a holy lifestyle? See, in our public arena, in our private arena, we are to work and live in such a way that we promote the news that Jesus saves. Hypocrisy is not supposed to be a part of our life. Laziness at work is not to be a part of our life. Cheating at school is not to be a part of our life. Cussing and cursing is not to be a part of our life. Because the world knows that they, those standards that the Bible has and they have for Christians, that Christians need to live up to them or they call them hypocrites and don't listen. 
So you and I in our private life, but in our public life, are to seek to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ being promoted. That's why. As a citizen of this land, I have obligations. And I have rights that I should fulfill as a believer. As a citizen of God's kingdom, I have obligations to be living in such a way that I am promoting the gospel. As a citizen of God's kingdom, I should be careful to try to help that Bible-approved practices be promoted in this society. Why is that? Why is it that you and I should try to influence our society, even in a political way, first of all, through evangelism, but secondly, in this political realm, why should we try to hinder evil and non-Bible practices? Because righteousness exalts a nation and sin is what? It's a reproach. It's a reproach. Righteousness, righteousness is what exalts a nation. When evil abounds, there is going to be consequences. Hey, listen, law of gravity applies to saved and unsaved alike. What goes up has got to come down. Law of gravity, you've got to have one break out of law of life for everybody. You've got to have a break one day out of seven or you will break. Okay, those are simple laws that apply to everyone, every place. There's, here's a simple law. You reap what you sow. Okay, and that happens to nations. If nations do evil, they will reap evil. When it goes well with the righteous, the city's going to rejoice. When the wicked perish, there's great shouting. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. But it'll be overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Listen, you and I need to make sure that righteousness is being done. And try to hinder the wickedness or our land is going to suffer for it. We can go through Bible history. We can talk about time after time how nations and civilizations and societies were punished because of the evil and the wickedness that came upon the land. That God said, I will not always strive. My spirit's not going to strive with the spirit of man. And he destroyed the world because of the wickedness that became rampant in the day of Noah. We can go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we can see that God heard the wickedness. And God was offended and God responded to that wickedness. Not because he's evil. Not because he's cruel. But after he gave warning after warning after warning. There is this truth. There's the truth that you reap what you sow. Even on a national level. We can go to Egypt that resisted God. That refused God. That would not listen. They were destroyed after being the world's greatest nation. They were pummeled by the plagues. And their, their armies were destroyed. Their firstborn were lost. Why? Because they would not submit unto the teachings and the word of God. We can go to Babylon. We can go to Nineveh. We can go to these great empires of the world. That they rose up and God even used them for a period of time in history. But they were destroyed. Why? Because like the prophet Jonah going there. The other prophets warning them like Daniel about the wickedness that there in Ezekiel. That the wickedness that you propagate in your nation. It is going to come to haunt you. It is going to come to bring you down. You need to stop the wickedness. You have people like Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra, warning the Jews, saying to the chosen people of God that if we don't stop the greed, if we don't stop the immorality, if we don't stop and, and try to stem the tide of evil, it will be our downfall. And eventually, after warning after warning, God did destroy the nation of Israel in 70 AD and left them out to dry for generations because of their lack of godliness, their lack of righteousness, their refusal to, be, to live up to the history that they had. 
I say this not because I want damage to be done. I say this not because I want to be you know, a negative person. I say this based upon the word of God. America needs to be careful. Because if evil continues, we will suffer consequences spiritually and, and nationally. That it will be a downfall of this nation. You and I have the truth. You and I are supposed to be the ones who are the salt and the life to try to stem the tide of evil. To try to influence. You say it's too big. It's too great. That it will never stop. But we should try. We should be the influence we can in the community that we live, in the area that we live, to try to stem evil, to try to hinder it. That leads me to another reason. We said that you and I need to exercise our rights as citizens to try to stem evil. One of the ways we can do that is even by our voting. Because as we vote, we make a difference. In our nation, there is one institution that is really making impact on social issues more than any other, other different branches of government. Which one is it? The Supreme Court is making those rulings. Our vote can make an impact on that Supreme Court, and we have obligation to try to stem what we can. On an individual basis, as a citizen, we should do what we can. We said three reasons. Number one, why you be involved, why you let the Bible guide you is one. As a Christian citizen, you have God-given responsibilities to your country. Number two, we said as a citizen of God's kingdom, you have obligations to make a difference in the land that you live in. Number three, this is not Bible-based in any one passage like the others were. This is history-based. As Americans, we have enjoyed many divine blessings. We have. You and I sitting here this morning in the comfort is amazing. We have freedoms. We have the, we have the right to property. We, most of us, we have more than most people in this world, physically, economically. Most of us have houses for our cars, that the world is amazed that we would have a house for our car. Our term is a garage. The world is amazed that we have refrigerators. When we had the Mannings here just a few weeks ago, we were talking and we had taken out, um, what's her name? Ra uh, Oksana. Oksana, thank you. When we went out to lunch, she was talking about how in her land in the Ukraine, everybody has plots outside the city or somewhere where they raise their potatoes. And, every, and where, wherever it is, okay, whatever time, where, whoever it is, they'll shut the banks, they'll shut everything down at potato planting season, they'll shut it down in the, in the fall when it's harvest season. Aren't you glad you don't have to go and do your own potatoes? I mean, we complain that we have, we have to go to potatoes and, or go to the store and feel out the potatoes. Okay? When we have, and how many choices of potatoes do we have? Okay. We live in luxury compared to the world. We have been blessed. The big question that you and I should ask is why? Why have we been privileged to live in a land that has wealth? A land that has peace? A land that has been prospered? Why is that? Well, I think one is because of the evangelism that this nation has done. This nation historically has sent out more missionaries than any nation in the world. It has invested. It has done a lot. But I think we can go back even further. I think we do this. Because our forefathers promoted Christianity. The Christian values and practices that they promoted, that laid the foundation for our nation in days gone by. Now, some of you may say, I don't believe that. I think our founding fathers were deists. 
I think our founding fathers had nothing with the intent of government and religion being, being working side by side. I think from everything I've heard in the public schools and from different spots that from the very beginning, religion was to be way aside and out of the mind of our forefathers. Is that true or false? Did they avoid all religious involvement and interaction between government and religion? True or false? Okay, let me show you historically. Okay, historically. Let's go back and let's talk and let's let some of our founding fathers tell you what they thought about religion and government. And whether there was this idea of freedom from religion in it as being claimed today. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not on the power of government. Okay, James Madison, one of the founding fathers. But to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Okay, let's go a little bit further. James Wilson, one of those in the Declaration as well as the Constitution. He said this, Christianity is part of the common law of the United States. Let's go a little bit further. Thomas Jefferson, you ever hear of him before? Okay. Okay, Thomas Jefferson, commenting on religion is deemed in other countries incompatible with good government, yet proved by our experience to be the best support of good government. Commenting on the Gospels that he read, a more beautiful and precious morsel of ethics I have never seen is a document and proof that I'm a real Christian. I question whether he's born again. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. But his point was, the Bible was a part of his study. It wasn't taken away from him. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who, by the way, look at the bottom uh, title. He is called the father of public schools. He's the one who helped incorporate them into the, into the system back in the uh, early founding of our nation. Said this, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. Without virtue, there can be no liberty. Without liberty, the object in life, that is the object of our republican government. I'll go a step further, okay, uh, in a moment with him. Nations cannot be rewarded. Now, we talked about nations living in the fear of God. Nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world. They must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. What was his point? We better be careful or we'll suffer national calamity. Okay, we go a little bit further. We talk about some of these people that said, okay, our founding fathers, the, the cry of the secularists today, say that there was a freedom of religion. We shouldn't have any religion involved in any of the institutions. We should take the Ten Commandments off the walls, in the courthouses. We shouldn't have Bibles being allowed on public property, which is a proposal in California, that you cannot carry a Bible on any public property. Um, there's this idea to get the Bibles, make sure it's not in schools, don't mention it, no praying, no, none of those things. I don't think our forefathers had an idea of freedom of uh, freedom of, of uh, they had an idea of freedom of religion, but not the way it's expressed today. Freedom from religion. When we talk about freedom of religion, it was the idea that you could worship as you choose. That the state of Virginia would no longer say the Episcopalian Church was the was the state religion. That Maryland would no longer say you have to be a Roman Catholic to worship here. That you wouldn't have uh, different states claiming their different their different identities. It was to be more like Rhode Island, who was founded by Baptists, who said that whatever you believe and whatever you practice, that's what you can practice, as long as you practice. And so that's where we have this idea. In fact, let me show you something. Here in the Virginia Bill of Rights that was written in 1776, notice how it says that religion duty we owe our creator in the manner of discharging it, however you're going to practice, can be directed only by reason and convictions, not by force or by state, by violence. Okay? They were saying freedom of religion. This is in their Bill of Rights. But I want you to catch the first line. Religion or the duty which we owe our creator. They weren't saying... We shouldn't have religion. They were saying it's your duty to have some type of religious practice, but it's by your own personal choice and conviction. 
Let me go a little bit further. Okay, John Jay, who is author of a lot of different documents, said this. It is the duty as well as the privilege of interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Okay, let me take it a step further. In Vermont, in their original documents, each member of the legislature, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe to the following. This is, this is to help you to understand that America was not founded on secularism. When you were an elected official in Vermont, here's what you had to pledge before you could take office. I do believe in one God, the creator, of the, God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of good and evil. I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be given by inspiration. And I own and profess the Christian religion. Okay. Does that sound like a secular state? Let me take a little bit further. Constitution of the state of Maryland. From 1776. No other test or qualification ought to be required for an, on admission to any office than fidelity to the state and a declaration of belief in the Christian religion. Let's take Delaware. Every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed shall make and subscribe to this declaration before holding office. I do profess faith in God the Father and the Son and Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Ghost. I acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Let me, let me take you to Pennsylvania in its original documents. In Pennsylvania, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of good and punisher of wicked. I do acknowledge the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, to be divinely inspired. Did our forefathers have a Christian nation in view? Yes, absolutely. Tennessee. Watch this. Tennessee says, No person who denies the being of God or in the future state of rewards or punishments shall hold any civic office. Okay. Now, they, uh, they also said, No religious test shall ever be required. In their mind, this wasn't a contradiction. In their mind, this wasn't a conflict. The denomination wasn't the question, but at least, do you have a God view? A worldview that is a God view. Let me take a step further. Northwest Ordinance. It was passed the same time, the same time the Bill of Rights was, was ratified for the United States. On that same day, no person demeaning himself in a peaceful or orderly manner shall ever be molested on account of his choice of worship, denomination, church, etc., etc. Okay? And they went on to say, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government, happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged to teach these things. Could we have religion in schools? Could in early America, could a Bible be taken into the schools and taught from? Well, let's go back to Governor Morris. Governor Morris, religion is the only solid basis of good morals. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion the duties of man towards God. Let's take it a little bit further. Let's do Noah Webster. You ever hear of Webster? Some of you have no clue what he is because he's not in texting. But uh, here, here he is. Education is use, useless without the Bible. Go a little bit further. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of public schools in America, wrote a book. And in his book, it was the defense of the use of the Bible in schools. Okay. Go further. I, in contemplating the political institutions of the United States, I lament that if we were to remove the Bible from schools, we waste so much time and money in punishing crimes. You think he's right? Yeah. Okay. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect of just laws, those sober and frugal virtues which constitute, constitute the soul of our government. We go a step further with, okay, did the government ever 
Did the early forefathers ever get involved with promoting the scriptures and getting them spread throughout America? Whereupon resolved that the United States and Congress assembled recommend a certain edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States and authorize its publication. They paid for it. Can you imagine that being brought up to Congress now? Yeah. We go a step further. Continental Congress ordered 20,000 Bibles to be spread to the troops. Why? They believed in the importance of the Bible. They believed in the importance of a Christian faith. The public utility pleads most forcibly for the general distribution of the Bible. Without the Bible, we increase the penal laws. Bibles are strong deterrents. Okay? Where they abound, men cannot pursue wicked courses and at the same time enjoy a quiet conscience. He's absolutely right. You take God and you take the Bible out from society and what do you have? Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Okay? Do we have a contrast? Last Sunday night I gave you quotes from, a, from the education system of today that uh, in the 1940s, and of the man's, my, just escaped me his name, but who had influenced the education system had said that we don't have, people born do not have an innate nature that leans one way or the other. That it is like a clean slate that somebody should put an imprint upon this individual. It's not good, it's not evil, and it's up to the government and schools to make the imprint. He's denying the sin nature of people. He's putting the responsibility of moral influence not where it belongs. In the family, in the home, in the church. He's putting it in government and in schools. Well, if the government and school has become secular, what's going to happen to the next generation? They're going to become secular, which is where we're at now. Interesting that if you study all the different writings of the Founding Fathers and put them together, that when they quote, 60% of their quotes come from the Bible. So when we say that our Founding Fathers had a Bible foundation for the country, I would say that's pretty accurate. I would say that we had started this country with a Christian worldview, not a secular worldview. I would say that this concept of a secular state virtually was non-existent. To read the Constitution as a charter for a secular state is to misread history. The Constitution was designed to perpetuate a Christian order in America. In fact, when we say that we have no soul and we have no rights at all as an individual goes contrary to exactly what the, what the declaration starts off. We have been endowed with inalienable rights by our... Yeah, yeah. So we go and we say, okay, here's a, here's a fact. America has been uniquely blessed in days gone by. And I am so thankful that it is, and I am so thankful I was put here and not in some of these foreign countries. So thankful, so grateful. Because our forefathers promoted Christian values and philosophies. I'm convinced of that, that God blessed America because it was founded upon God-respecting principles. Which brings me to this, we owe it to the next generation to seek to incur those same divine blessings. Those of us who have grown up under the blessings from previous generations that had a Christian worldview, we owe it to the next generation to try to protect that Christian worldview so they can grow up. You who are parents should be the ones who would jump at the voting booth to try to prevent and protect the onslaught of evil that your kids are going to have to face and deal with. You who are grandparents should say, I want to try to make a difference. I wanted to make a difference for the sake of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
This isn't about our, uh, this isn't about our busyness. It isn't about our discouragements over the candidates. This isn't about you and I and all of you know, all of the different the different you know, views. My candidate didn't get get the vote in the primary. This is about trying to make a difference when we can, and trying to vote, trying to witness, trying to share the gospel. First order, sharing the gospel. Second down the line, trying to use my Christian influence to try to make a difference. We should vote for the persons or parties that best reflect biblical values. We should not vote based upon this is the party I've always been a member of. This is the party that I've never voted outside of. This is the gender I want to favor. This is the color of skin I want to favor. This is the accent. This is, we should vote by Bible principles. That means we need to learn what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about critical issues? And there are a number of critical issues. There's a bunch of them that are so important that the Bible addresses that you need to be aware of so you vote according to the Bible. We're going to deal with some of that tonight. We're going to start talking about this in the next couple of weeks, some of these moral and social issues. But the more important question for those here this morning is this. Are you sure that you have a citizenship in that future kingdom of God? Do you know for sure that when Jesus Christ comes back, that he will take you away to heaven to get you ready for that kingdom here on earth? If not, you're going to be left behind, and you will see at that time, when you're left behind, the world in its most secular, most horrific condition. You will see a system that will arise in this world that will be God-denying and it will be Satan-worshipping. It'll be an antichrist system that will become absolutely forceful that everybody bow the knee to him or they die. You will see poverty like never before. You'll see war like never before. You'll see death like never before. Within that three and a half year period, you will see the first three and a half years, you will see a quarter of mankind die. Then in the next three and a half years, another one third. It'll be the most horrific time for catastrophes on planet earth because God will take away his influential people, move them out, and he will turn it over for seven years to Satan. And it will become absolute chaos and bedlam. You don't have to live in that time period. You have to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, which could be any moment. You need to know that you are born again. I say that not to scare you. I take that back. I do say that to scare you. I would say anything to get you to do the truth here. That's righteous. You should be afraid of the future. A future where God will say, the world is at your disposal for a bit. Do as you wish. You don't want to live there during that time period. You will hear noises like you're not hearing right now. Okay. <laughs> It'll be worse. It'll be more distracting. You need to listen to the voice of God Almighty when he says, today is the day of salvation. This is the time to get born again while you have an opportunity.